0: You know, one of the great truths of our faith, one of the great distinctions about being a a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ is understanding that from the very beginning, literally from the very beginning, that our God is the God who speaks. We know the words of Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And because he has been the God from, from the very beginning, that the, the first thing he did was speak. We can sing a song like this and say, Speak, O Lord, all over again. And, and really have every confidence, every assurance that That in some way, a still small voice through the preaching of the word, whatever it is, that he is a God who hears the cries of his people. He hears our worship and song and scripture. And he shows us the way that we'll go if we'll just give him our attention. And so, Father, we thank you this morning that we come to you not as a God who's distant and aloof, not as a God who spun the world into existence and then walked away to let us do our thing and figure it out ourselves. But, Lord, your word assures us in so many other places that It even says in the New Testament, you uphold, you continue to uphold all things by the word of your power. That you hold the universe together, that you keep the earth turning. Father, you're in control as well. The great big stuff as well as the every minute detail of each and every one of our lives. You know it, you care, you're involved, you're concerned. And you assure us that you're working everything, even the things we can't understand all out for your glory and our good. And Father, we don't always get that, and sometimes we doubt that deeply. But that's why we come back to this book, your word that reminds us of the things that are true. Father, the things that never change. Truths, as we just sang, unchanged from the dawn of time that echo down through eternity. One of the greatest of those truths is that you speak. Father, now we turn our attention to your word, expecting, believing that you will do just that, not because We've crafted some wonderful service, not because of anything that I've come up with to say, but simply because we believe that when the Word is opened and the Spirit is present and our hearts are receptive, that you deal with us in ways we don't get dealt with in other settings and other places. Father, I plead for your help today, that I might speak the things I ought to speak, that we might rightly divide the Word of Truth together. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Father, we love you. We love each other so much. And we want to hear not the voice of the preacher, but the voice of the Lord through the preaching of the word so that we might know how to live in this broken, messy world. Father, at the same time today, we pray wherever believers are meeting, that you would do the same, that you would make yourself known, that you would show yourself in power and faithfulness. Father, we think of those, not just believers, but everyone in the path of this massive hurricane that's moving toward toward the coast even today. Father, that has a potential to devastate lives and homes. And, and Father, we pray that you would protect each and every person in the path of that. Father, we pray, as even last night, there's another act of violence in our country. Father, we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Deal with the mess. Clean it up. Comfort those who are hurting. And use both of these terrible situations to bring more men, women, and children to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Father, with that said, we ask as always now that you would... By the powerful ministry of your Holy Spirit, guide us in truth, guard us from error, deliver us from apathy, and help us to see Jesus. May we see Jesus clearly this morning in the preaching of your word. May we see Jesus only this morning in the preaching of your word. And in a little while, when we walk out these doors, Father, may it be with great joy, because we had the great privilege of sitting. At the feet of the one who loved us enough to lay his life down and take it up again in victory on our behalf, his name is Jesus. We love him, we praise him, and it's in his name that we pray, as all God's people said together like they mean it. Amen. 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 You may be seated. And as you're sitting down, boys and girls, Children's Church time, you can get out and head over to Children's Church for some time in God's word. And as they do that, I want to invite those of you not going to Children's Church to grab your Bible. And I want you to turn in it with me this morning one final time to the Old Testament book of Malachi as we continue, as we actually this morning conclude our summer long series surveying the minor prophets. Some of you may be dropping in today for the first time, for the first time in a while. We've spent, uh, what you need to know is we've spent the last three months or so looking at this last Often overlooked, I think in in, in many ways, obscure portion of our Bibles, a portion that many of us probably don't readily run to when we're looking for something in God's Word. Um, But there are, at the end of the Old Testament, 12 short books. They're called the Minor Prophets. They're called minor not because they're less important, but because they're short. And uh, we, this summer, have been looking at six of them looking for what lessons, even though these are words, these are prophecies that were written to a particular people at a particular time in a particular place more than 2,000 years ago. What we're seeing is that even today, 2,000 years later, there are major lessons for us in the minor prophets. And uh, as you've discovered with me the past couple of weeks, some of them are very, very heavy. told several of you after last Sunday's service, uh, somebody says something about the sermon. I said, yeah, that's a two-hour nap sermon right there. And I went home and did it because, man, this stuff is... uh, This stuff is heavy, but I want you to know that as heavy as the last couple of weeks have been, that this one, this is a substantial message as well. At the same time, I think it's going to allow us to sort of stick the landing, as it were, in a good, solid, hopeful place. So I urge you to pay attention closely one more time, to dig in with me. As we look, we've been finishing these past few weeks in the book of Malachi. I'm going to begin with the reading of God's Word this morning. Last week we looked at the first 12 verses of Malachi 3, therefore I'm going to begin reading at verse 13. I'm going to finish chapter 3 and then read all six verses of chapter 4, and then we'll walk through them together. But for starters, here's what the Word of God says. This is the Lord speaking to Israel through Malachi. Your words have been arrogant against me, says the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You have said, it's vain to serve God. What profit is it that we've kept his charge and that we've walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we, this is Israel speaking, we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are doers of wickedness built up, but they test God and escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and who esteem his name. They'll be mine, says the Lord of hosts. On the day that I prepare my own possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. So that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. So remember the law of Moses, my servant. Even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel... Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet. Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the heart of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. I want you to think for a moment, if you would, about the words that we use, the words that you use, when you know it's going to be a while till you see someone you love again. Maybe a very short while, maybe a really long while, maybe a very indefinite period of time. You just don't know. But, but what you do know is we're about to part ways, and it's going to be a little bit of time before we come back together. I'm asking you to, to consider, what kind of things is it that we say? Maybe when we're dropping off our, our kindergartner at school, on the first day of school for the very first time. When a a friend or a loved one's moving far away across the country, we know it's going to be a really long time before we see their face in person again. Maybe it's taking your adult child off to college for the very first time. I I think you'd agree with me, whatever kind of words you might use, those are moments when, if of course we can keep it together, right? If we can hold the emotions in check, that we want to be sure we say something memorable. We want to be sure we say something substantial. Maybe it's not just, I love you, but I love you because... It's not just I'm so thankful for you, but I'm, I'm thankful for you because I love you. I'll miss you. Don't forget to write. Remember to check the oil. I mean, something important we want to communicate so that the lessons and the final words stick. Because everybody knows, we all know this, last words matter. Everybody knows that last words matter. And that's a good place for us to begin this morning. It's a good thought for us to begin with as we arrive... Not only at the end of Malachi's book, not only at the end of our summer-long study of the minor prophets, but as you can tell if you're looking at your Bible, the very last passage of the entire Old Testament, the last exchange that we are given between God and his people Israel before they were plunged into 400 years of silence. 400 years where no word, no prophet, no messages from God until that silence was broken four centuries later when one day an angel of the Lord appeared in the temple to a guy named Zacharias to say, John the Baptist is going to be your son, he's on the way. But nothing for 400 years in between. In other words, what I want you to see as we dive into the word this morning is that these are some truly famous last words. There's some truly significant, substantial last words words. And in order for us to understand what was said, and of course, as always, why it matters, why we should care, we need to start with the first thing I want you to see in the text this morning. It's going to take it a few verses at a time. Is that the remainder of chapter 3, chapter 3 of Malachi, verses 13 through 18? The first thing I want you to see this morning is what we are shown is the people's, the people of Israel's last grievance with the Lord. The people's last grievance that they brought before the Lord. I don't know if you recall this, because again, it was several weeks ago, but when we started into Malachi, looking at this book together probably I think this is the one we've spent of the minor prophets the most time in but, but one of the things I said in our first study of Malachi was that the book is written, if you look at it closely, how it's composed, it's written as a series of disputes. It's questions and answers. The people of Israel have a complaint. God answers the complaint. That's what the whole book is about. And and as we've gone through it, what you may have noticed is God does all the talking. But in doing so, what he is showing them, he's saying, listen, I've been paying attention. I've been listening to the things that you've said to each other when you think no one's paying attention. I've overheard the complaints, the gripes, the laments you have against me and and I know what they are and and what he shows them in the book of Malachi is not only have I heard your complaints but I've got an answer for every single one of them and I'm ready to deliver it to you. But what I'd like to suggest to you this morning, we've seen five or six of these complaints or these disputes so far. What I want you to see this morning is the one that's here, the last dispute that the people of Israel had for God is probably the, the most practical And in a sense, the most consequential dispute or complaint of all. Because the people's last grievance with the Lord was this see if this doesn't sound familiar, like maybe something you've thought once or twice. The question they had was this Does following the Lord really matter? I mean, we already know him, we've already trusted him. But does following, by following, I mean hearing, listening, obeying, walking with the Lord, really matter? Look at verses fourteen and fifteen. I'll show you that's what they're asking. You have said. Now this is God quoting their own words back to it, to hit their own words back to them. Again, I've heard it, and I know what you said. Here's what you've been saying: It is vain to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his charge, that we have walked in mourning before the Lord of hosts? So now we've concluded that the arrogant are the blessed ones, and not only are doers of wickedness built up, but they test God and they escape. In other words, here's what they're saying. We don't think obedience makes any difference. In other words, here's what they're saying. We don't think repentance changes anything. In other words, here's what they're saying. We still believe. This is the very first thing we saw in the very first of our look at the minor prophets, and it's been every single one of them, all six that we've looked at. We still think the wicked always win. That's what they say in verses 14 and 15. Obedience doesn't matter, repentance doesn't help, and the wicked always win. So, does following the Lord really make any difference? Does obeying you really matter? And in response to that grievance, in response to that complaint, the Lord assured them. The Lord is about to make it very clear that that how they live their lives, in fact, does matter. Because as it says in verse 18, look at verse 18 in your Bible. There is, in fact, the Lord said, a distinction. You will see what I already know, the Lord says, that there is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Now, I could be wrong. There's a couple of different schools of thought on verse 18. Some people look at verse 18. I want to approach this humbly, but I want to tell you what I think as well. Some people look at verse 18 and say it's just talking about two kinds of people. If you look at it, that that when he says the righteous and the wicked, that the righteous in the first half of the verse are the same as the one who serves God in the second half of the verse, and the wicked in the first half of the verse are the same as the one who does not serve him. That those are two simple, equal, or not equal, but two simple groups, just just one distinction between them. I think that's a fair way to look at it, but I disagree. I think that the, the right way, or the way that I understand this verse, is he's talking about two distinctions here. First of all, there's a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. There are those who know the Lord. They have a relationship with God by grace through faith. Old Testament, New Testament, that's what makes you righteous. Faith in the Lord. And the wicked, that's one distinction. Those who are in the kingdom, those who are out. Those who know the Lord, those who don't. I think the second half of the verse is a subset of the righteous. There's the righteous and the wicked, and then among the righteous, there are those who serve God and those who don't. Those who serve the Lord... And those who do not serve him. Now again, I could be wrong about that. But I think it's a fair interpretation. And and, and either way, whether you agree with what I'm saying or not, we have to conclude, I believe we have to conclude, if we look at this honestly and objectively at verse 18, that the Lord's response to their last grievance is clear. How you live your life matters. How you live your life as a believer in the Lord, as a follower of Christ, matters. Because, it says in verse 16, now, 14 and 15, he talks about those who are complaining and those who are lamenting and those who say none of it matters. But Look again at what he said in verse 16, because it says, when those who feared the Lord, and fear, fearing the Lord is always associated with humble, willing obedience in the Bible. When those who feared the Lord spoke to each other. Okay, First of all, remember, he's, he said, I heard the wicked and, 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 and those who don't believe talking to each other, and I heard what theirs, they said, but I also heard what the righteous were saying to each other, those who fear the Lord. And when I heard those who fear the Lord talking to each other, it says the Lord gave attention and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him regarding those who fear the Lord and esteem his name. Now, I know some of them it's going to make you uncomfortable when I say this, but I think it's absolutely true. God's keeping score. He's keeping score. There is a record book in heaven of some kind. He he is paying attention to the way you live your life as a believer and the way that I live mine. How, How do I know that? Well, it says, those who feared the Lord were talking to each other. God listened, and they pulled out a book. Somebody in heaven pulled out a book of remembrance, and they wrote Before him, what they were saying and doing. He is, in other words, listen to me. He is, in other words, taking note, keeping record of every step of faith you take. Of every sacrificial act and gift you offer. He is keeping track of every cup of cold water, every bag of rice, every abundant live food box you give to somebody else in his name. He's paying attention. He's keeping track of the things we do as believers in obedience to him. That's why I say among the righteous, I think there are those who are serving him and those who, at least for a season of time, are not. Well, Aaron, it sounds like you're talking about a works-based faith. You're talking about works. That's not the gospel. No, I'm not talking about a works-based faith. I'm talking about a faith that works. I'm talking about, I've been so changed in my heart by Jesus Christ that that it impacts the way I speak and the way I think and the way I live and the things I do and the priorities I have and the way I deal with other people. My willingness to forgive, my willingness to serve, my willingness to sacrifice. I'm talking about a faith that works and that is motivated not by, I gotta get in God's good graces. I don't want him mad at me but motivated by the words of Jesus in John 15. Among many other things in John 15, John 15, 10, he said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my who knows, abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, if you do what I tell you to do, you abide in my love, you remain in it, you grow in it, you experience it, you enjoy it. And then a couple of verses later, he says, oh, by the way, just in case you missed it when I said it in verse 10, let me repeat it in verse 14 in another way. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Now, when he said that, he was talking to 11 faithful disciples. Judas was already gone. He's saying to the 11 who were believers, who were saved, who became the early pillars of the church, the first apostles, hey, guys, you've got a choice. And if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. And you are my friends if you do. What I ask you to do, the sign of friendship, the sign of devotion, is obedience. So don't buy the people's last grievance, even though it's tempting for us to buy into. Their last grievance with the Lord, following him matters. Repeat after me. Following him matters. Following him matters. Yes, it does. And in his famous last words of the Old Testament, he wants us to know that. That's the first thing I want you to see this morning. And as we transition out of chapter three and into chapter four, there's a second thing we need to see in these famous last words. And that is after God dealt with the people's final last grievance against him, He then turns around in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and delivers the Lord's last assurance to the people. It's the second thing I want you to see this morning. The Lord's last assurance in this letter, in this book, in this prophecy, in the Old Testament, to his people. You know, whenever our kids uh, were, were young, starting school, preschool, kindergarten, and battling homesickness, which some of them did. And and I fully confess that came from me. I was a basket case for the first month of kindergarten when I was a little boy. Ask my mom after church. She'll tell you all kinds of horror stories about how how awful I was for the first month of kindergarten. Well, for some reason, some of that went down, and and my kids caught that. And when they were little, some of them, and we knew that those first days of preschool and kindergarten, that they were just having a a terrible time with, with separation and homesickness. My wife had an idea and I thought it was brilliant and and I think it helped at least after a while and when she knew one of them was struggling on those first few difficult days of school right before they left in the morning she'd take a little sheet of paper and she'd write a, a verse, a part of a verse, just enough that a four or five year old could read, you know something like Jesus said I'm with you always or be strong and courageous the Lord, I mean just something like that, a word of encouragement and then she'd fold that sheet of paper up and she'd stick it in their pocket. She said, now listen, your teacher's not going to mind this. Whenever you get sad, whenever the butterflies rise in your tummy, whenever you're afraid, just pull that verse out and read it. And then put it back and remember, I'll be back soon. Remember the promise, and I'll be back soon. I thought that was brilliant. I thought that was so good. And, And that's pretty much exactly what God does here in the final few verses of Malachi chapter 4 the first few verses of malachi chapter 4 because as i said to you a moment ago once malachi finished his prophetic work israel went into 400 years of silence now they didn't know that's how long it was going to be they didn't know it'd be 400 years before god sent them another prophet before god gave them another message before he raised up another leader like moses or elijah or joshua or whoever else that he was going to work through 400 years of silence they didn't know it but he did and because he's a good father and he's a good God who loves his people, he gave them some promises. He gave them some words that they could write down and stick in their pocket. And whenever they got worried and whenever they got scared, they could pull him out and look and remember oh, yeah, and he is coming back. He'll be back in a little while, he'll speak again. Here are three of the promises he gave them. Let's look at There's just one in each of the first three verses of chapter 4. As he closes out the Old Testament, knowing his people are about to be plunged into silence, the first promise God gave them, the first assurance here in chapter 4, verse 1, is this. Evil will be eradicated. While you wait, while you wonder, while you worry, while you suffer, you can be sure evil one day will be eradicated. Chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming. Now this is talking about the end, the very end. But even so, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And that day is co- and that day is coming. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. God says, I'm going to deal once and for all with the problem of evil. And if you want to understand how thoroughly I'm going to deal with the problem of evil, when it's all said and done, when we get to the very end, uh, the most helpful line in verse 1 is the last one. The Lord says, I'm going to deal with evil in such a way that I will leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, picture evil as a tree. Not a bad point of reference. The first act of evil was committed at a tree. And what God basically says, if you'll think about it that way for a moment, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to chop the tree down. I'm going to burn the tree up. And then I'm going to dig down and pull the roots out. He says branch and root. I'm going to pull all the roots out and I'm going to burn them too so there's not one seedling that escapes. There's not one little root that might spring back to life. No, when I finally deal with evil once and for all, I'm going to defeat it at the cross, but I'm going to destroy it at the end. I'm going to leave not a shred of possibility that it can ever happen again. Evil will be eradicated. Promise number two, according to verse two, not only one day will evil be eradicated but here's a second promise you can write down and stick in your pocket transformation will be total a day is coming when transformation will be total verse 2 but for you who fear my name again because believing and following serving me makes a difference for you who fear my name the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Now, some of your study Bibles, if you've got a study Bible in front of you this morning, I have a hunch that some of them will will, will say otherwise. But but could we all just look at verse 2 this morning and just all kind of in friendship and and agreement and in harmony with one another and realize that verse 2 is talking about Jesus. Some of your Bibles capitalized son and spell it S-O-N. Some keep it lowercase and spell it S-U-N. It's talking about Jesus. It's a reference to Christ, the son of righteousness who will rise with healing in his wings and do stuff for you that will cause you to want to, I don't know what it looks like for a cattle, a calves from the skull to skip, but apparently that's a good thing. And, and he says it's going to be so great that's what you're going to want to do. I really believe with all my heart this is talking about Jesus and what what he did at his first coming and what he is also going to do at his second. And, 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 And if you won't accept that or you're still inclined to question that simply by looking at it on the surface, well, let me tell you something about this verse that I didn't know until a couple of days ago. I learned that the word for wings, look at verse 2. The Son of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Of course, there's a Hebrew word behind the English for wings. There's two ways to translate that Hebrew word into English. To equally valid, equally appropriate, and as you're about to see, equally applicable ways. They don't seem to have anything to do with each other, and that's why I think it's all the more compelling. One way to translate it is wings, healing in his wings. The other way to translate the Hebrew word from into English is Hem of a robe or garment, meaning that we could equally legitimately translate verse 2, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in the hem of his garment. And you will, when you meet him and encounter him, will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Now, if you've read the Gospels, that ought to ring a bell, right? Because my Bible says, pretty sure yours does too, in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 25, that there was a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years, who had endured much at the hands of many physicians and spent all she had and was not helped at all, but rather grown worse. And after hearing about Jesus, she came up in the crowd behind him and touched the hem of his robe, the hem of his garment. And immediately she thought, if I touch his garment, I will get well. And immediately the flow of her blood was dried up. And she felt in her body that she'd been healed of her affliction. Why? Because with Jesus, transformation is always total. It may not be immediate like it was here. It may be gradual. It may take the rest of the life. And we know that it really doesn't happen until we all get to heaven, right? When we see Jesus face to face. When we see him, we will be like him. But transformation is total. He says, I want you to hang on, write that promise down, stick it in your pocket, because everything in this world is going to tell you it's not true, but it is. Hang on to that promise, people, the Lord said. It's an assurance. Number one, evil will be eradicated. Number two, transformation will be total, because it's all about Jesus. Third and finally, very, very simply, according to verse 3, victory is assured, Despite what circumstances may suggest, victory is assured. Verse 3, God says to his people, you will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. So no, once again, the wicked will not get away with it forever. Yes, once again, those who trust Christ will be vindicated. And if that little snippet of a verse at the end of Malachi, isn't enough to convince you, let me share with you or remind you, in fact, I want you to turn there very quickly to something the Apostle John said in Revelation 19. Go in your Bible very quickly to Revelation 19, where what is given to us here in Malachi 4.3 in seed form is exposed much more clearly and dramatically. The Apostle John writes the book of Revelation. He writes it because God told him to, and he showed him some things, a glimpse of the future a glimpse of the end of all things. And here's what he said to remind us, to affirm for us that victory will come. Revelation 19:11. I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. He who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire on his Head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of lords, and when he has come and done his avenging work, his righteous, holy, dealing with sin, flip over a page to chapter 21. John says this, when it's all said and done, Satan's dealt with, the wicked are are judged, a lot of hard things take place. John says then, Revelation 21.1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth passed away, and there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death and there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain because the first things have passed away and he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things, what? New. New. And he said, Write. Write it down and stick it in your pocket because these words are faithful and true. And whether you're a follower of God in Malachi's day or you're a believer in Jesus Christ today, those are some pretty great assurances, aren't they? Evil will be eradicated. Transformation will be total. Victory is assured. They are promises all of us as believers can bank on. And I would urge you, not in a symbolic way but in a literal way, write them down and stick them in your pocket because you're going to need them this week. And so am I. Stuff's going to come our way, big or small. Trials we're in the middle of challenges we face, what we read in the news, and it's going to say, that's not true. And you're going to say, oh yes, my God said it is. Evil will be eradicated. Transformation will be total. Victory is assured. It may not look like it today, but how easily we forget that God is faithful. Well, that might seem like enough last words. There's actually very quickly one more thing we need to see here. After taking a look at the Lord's, or the people's, last grievance against the Lord, and then secondly, the Lord's last assurance to his people, there are three more verses left in Malachi, and there are a section there, a concluding section, that I simply have titled a parting shot. (laughs) After all the rest is done, the other words have been given, God has a parting shot to give his people then and now, and I really think it's a fitting conclusion to our whole minor prophet study, because The message in the the last of these famous last words, the message in these last three verses moves from what God has promised to how we should live in light of those things. In light of the fact that the promises I just told you, they are true. Okay, well if A, serving God and following him really does matter, and B, these are the things that he has promised are going to happen, then C, you and I ought to be asking the question we always come to, repeat after me, so what? Last three verses to answer that question. Here's how we should live in light of those things. There are three things, three ways in which we need to look. Number one, I'm going to give these to you quickly, so if you want to write them down, get ready. Look into God's word and live accordingly. Be a man, a woman, a young person who looks into God's word and lives accordingly. Verse four, remember the law of Moses, my servant. Even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him... In Horeb, for all Israel. Now, in Malachi's day, that's all they had, the law of Moses, what we call the Old Testament. But even that was still in the process of all coming together. But God said, listen, what I've given you, look at and obey. He's given us more. We need to look at it and follow it and heed it and obey it. Because 400 years later, Jesus came along and he said something very memorable. Man shouldn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus agrees with Malachi, as you would expect. He says, while you wait, while you wait, look into his word and live accordingly. Second, look ahead to the deliverance we've been promised. Be somebody who looks ahead to the deliverance we've been promised. Verse 5, behold, God tells the believers in Malachi's day, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet, Before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, we learned last week, and I'm not going to take the time to review it, but just trust me when I say that's a prophecy of John the Baptist. And the Lord said John the Baptist was going to come before Jesus to purify and prepare the people for Messiah, for Christ's appearance. But what we've just been reminded, what we just read in Revelation, is that a a greater deliverer than John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, is coming. And he's not coming this time as a baby, he's coming as a king. And he's coming as Lord, and we need to look ahead, you need to look ahead, I need to look ahead to that deliverance we've been promised, look into God's word and live accordingly, look ahead to the deliverance we've been promised, and then third and finally, verse 6 says, look forward to the fact that all will be well, look forward to the fact that all will be well, Verse 6, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children. And he will restore the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. I believe that was fulfilled in microcosm through John the Baptist and Christ at his first coming, but I think he's talking about something greater. He'll restore the hearts of fathers to children and hearts of children to fathers. You know, it's been said, and I think it's true, there's no pain like family pain like families that are fractured, like trust that's broken between husbands and wives and parents and children and outlaws and in-laws and all that kind of stuff. There's no pain like family pain. So, that leads me to believe if when Jesus comes back, he's going to take care of that, he can handle everything else. He can fix it all. He will fix it all. There's a day coming. It really is true. All will be well. All will will be well. And I ask you, what better last words could he give us than that? Basically, if you want to boil what I just gave you down to three words, he says live obediently, live expectantly, live hopefully. Obediently, expectantly, and hopefully. And that's why the big idea of today's message, and really probably, I think, maybe the most major lesson we're going to get out of the Minor Prophets, is that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have every reason for Hope. As believers in Jesus Christ, you and I have every reason for hope. Today may be terribly hard, and there's probably some some rough seasons, some choppy waters ahead for us all. But what we see and feel and know today is not the whole story. It's not the end of the story. It's part of the story, but it's not where it's going. It's not the way it's always going to be. We have every reason for hope. And so as we bow our heads and go to prayer, and I'm just going to invite you to do that right now, I want to just take a, a minute or two, maybe three, for each of us as needed to just sort of respond to the Lord accordingly. And I have got a couple questions I want you to consider. As you bow your head, as you just quiet your thoughts, as you set your stuff aside, First of all, I ask you just to really consider today. Ask yourself, do I really know Jesus Christ? I I, I didn't just read about him. I didn't just agree with some things he said. But I genuinely believe that as Son of God, he died on the cross for my sin. And I want to urge you, even if you've been coming here for years and, and everybody thinks you already know, and believe, and the truth is you don't. For goodness sake, don't let that keep you from trusting him today. Simply, Lord, I believe you did that for me, that you took the wrath, that you took my place, that you loved me enough to lay your life down, and I believe. And then to move there from that first distinction between those who believe and those who don't to those who, among those of us who believe, to those who are walking with the Lord and those who are, for whatever reason, in whatever way, not. What, what do you need to, to commit to today? Where have you lost hope? Maybe the reason you're not walking with the Lord is you just have lost hope. And you're not living obediently because you no longer live expectantly. And is there business you just need to do with him today and say, maybe your prayer is simply, Lord, even though this, that, and the other has happened, I declare once again today, I plant my flag on the conviction that you are my hope. And I will hope in you. Maybe your prayer is, Lord, help me today to live obediently. Help me today, Lord, to begin living expectantly. Help me today, Lord, to live hopefully and joyfully. Would you just take the next moment before I conclude in prayer and we sing a final song. If there's anything you just need to to bring to him, to do it right now. Because he's happy to hear from you today. Father, I thank you today, we thank you today that the words we sang a little bit earlier really are the truth, that hope has a name. There is hope, hope has a name, his name is Jesus. Father, I thank you that you have revealed him to us. I thank you that you sent him here for us. I thank you that he paid the whole price for us. And Lord, as your word says in another place, that now, even now, he lives to make intercession, to pray, and to advocate, and to plead for us. Father, would you help those today whose hearts are still struggling, maybe even hard and resistant to you, as well as meet those of us who have come to you in humility and brokenness and willingness, saying, Lord, I know I need your help, and and I'm ready for a fresh start. And Father, for those who came walking, help us to keep walking. Remembering that that walking with you, obeying you, serving you makes a difference. Father, that that there are, that the best is yet to come. There's so much to look forward to. And Father, that you have shown us, you've given us a plan, a way to live while we wait. Father, as we stand to our feet now, and let's just all stand to our feet as we prepare to close in worship. As we stand, Heavenly Father, before you. We sing a final song of worship. Father, I pray that you will receive our praise gladly, that even in these final moments, you will change our hearts deeply and that you will cause us to leave here joyfully. For Jesus' sake, amen.